Does God really care about how His people live? Does He really want them to be holy as He is holy? A popular conception of God is that He's much like a a cosmic clockmaker who sets the world into motion and then steps back, just kind of watch everything unfold. In reality, this is not a, a Christian conception or biblical conception of God. God is indeed transcendent. He is glorious and sovereign and supremely above all things. But He's also imminent. He is is present with His creation, especially His people. And He is involved in the affairs of this world and concerned about them. Over and over again in the Scriptures, they reveal that God is concerned with how His people live. And this is what we've been seeing unfold in the book of Amos. In the passage that we're considering together this morning, Amos once again confronts the people of God and expresses God's displeasure with their lives and how they have been living. This morning we're especially looking at Amos chapter 3 verses 1 to 15. And if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to the passage. Uh, If you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 765. 765 of the Bibles provided. Now, previous to serving the Lord as a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, Amos, he was a shepherd and farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah. Much of the imagery that Amos uses in this book, in this prophecy, draws on his experience as a shepherd. And we'll see some of that imagery this morning. At the time of Amos' ministry, the the northern kingdom of Israel is deeply entrenched in sinful patterns. Amos tells us that the people of Israel are filled with greed, and that they practice idolatry. Amos tells us that the people of Israel are guilty of taking bribes, perverting justice, and that they oppress the weakest and most defenseless in their nation. They are religious hypocrites who practice sexual immorality, Amos tells us. By and large, Amos is is not speaking to a nation who is concerned with God and His ways. And it's Amos' responsibility to tell Israel that because of her sin, she will be carried off into exile. The Israelites will be thrust out of their land because of their sin, just like Adam and Eve were thrust out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. Two weeks ago, we studied the last uh, two-thirds of chapter 2, where the Lord announced Judah's judgment and Israel's indictment. In chapter 3, it picks right up where chapter 2 left off, addressing both nations, or as Amos puts it, the whole family of God. Read Amos chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 with me. Amos chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is obviously the opening statement of what will follow. These two verses also underscore the the shocking nature of the punishment that is to come. And it's here that I want to step back and provide us the the big picture of what Amos is going to do in this chapter. 
Amos is going to remind the people of Israel about their relationship with God. Proclaim God's promise of punishment and reveal God's intention of rescuing a remnant through retribution. And if I had to summarize the thrust of Amos 3 in one sentence, it would be this. So here's the sentence that summarizes the whole sermon. But listen to the rest of it, please. Um, here's, here's, here's the thrust of Amos 3. God will punish His people and rescue a remnant. That's simple. God will punish His people and rescue a remnant. And we're going to look at Amos 3 in three sections under three headings. First, remember our relationship. Promise of punishment. Rescue through retribution. God says to Israel, remember our relationship. Here's a promise. Punishment is coming. And yet I'm going to rescue some of you in my grace and kindness. Now for those of you who are taking notes, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And if you didn't catch them, not to worry, I'll repeat each of them as we're moving into each new section, like now. So here's the first point. Remember our relationship. Remember our relationship. And read those first two verses of Amos chapter 3 with me again. Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now the people of Israel, they must have been stunned by what Amos said in chapter 2. Amos had worked his way through a series of speeches condemning the surrounding six nations, the six nations that surrounded Israel. And then he turns to God's people. He turned to Judah and to Israel and he condemned them for their sin. And with the people that he was addressing, probably reeling in disbelief, Amos calls them to the first word right there, hear. It's almost as if Amos is saying to God's people, listen closely, I, I really am speaking to you. In case you didn't get those previous verses, that what I just said, I really am speaking to you. Hear this word. And this exhortation to hear is crucially important too because as we know from Amos chapter 2, verse 4, Judah rejected the law of the Lord and did not keep His statutes. In other words, Judah did not listen to and obey God's word. They refused to hear what the Lord had said. And we know that was true for Israel too. Because of all of their violations and sins in chapter 2 verses 6 to 16, those violations are the fruit of failing to hear, trust, and obey the law of the Lord. God's people had stuffed up their ears and refused to hear. But Amos exhorts them and commands them to hear this word that the Lord has spoken against them. In chapter 2, Amos has just mentioned a few words that the Lord has against His people. But here in chapter 3, he's saying he's got a few more words that they need to hear. And before Amos shares those words with God's people, he reminds them that the Lord was for them before He was against them. He reminds them of their past. The Lord brought the whole family up out of the land of Egypt. You'll recall from the book of Exodus that for years, the people of God had been enslaved in Egypt. They were forced to make bricks without straw, without being supplied straw. And over time, Pharaoh and the Egyptians increasingly oppressed God's people. God's people finally cried out to Him, and He raised up a rescuer in Moses. 
Through Moses and ten miraculous plagues, God single-handedly defeated the entire Egyptian army and set them free. God then brought the people of Israel to Mount Sinai and He entered into a covenant with them. He showed them His loving kindness through this covenant and His commitment to them. And after God spoke His word to His people in that covenant, in response, the people of God said in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. People of Israel confessed this, said this, affirmed that this is what they would do. But the sad truth that we're learning here in Amos is that the people of God did not keep their word. Oh, but they should have. They were a unique and most beloved people in God's sight. Look again at what the Lord Himself says there in verse 2. You only, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel had a relationship with God unlike any other nation in the world. Israel and Israel alone had God known. And that, no, that word known means loved. It, it means intimate love. God loves His people intimately. And He can, because to use the words of Psalm 139, God is the one who knows when we sit down and when we arise. Even before a word is on our tongues, He knows it all together. He is the one who formed our inward parts. He is the one who knitted us together in our mother's wombs. Especially with regard to His people, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He knew us before the foundation of the world. Loved us before the foundation of the world. When God says to His people, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, He is reminding them of His unique and special love toward them, displayed in all of His marvelous acts of kindness to freedom from Egypt, to the conquest of the promised land, to the establishment of the kingdom under David, to the glorious reign of Solomon, and to everything else in between. It's because of the very nature of this relationship that God will punish or discipline His people for all of their iniquities. That's what the therefore is therefore in the text. As I mentioned earlier in Exodus 24, the people of Israel promised to do all that the Lord had spoken. In Deuteronomy 27, the people of Israel even call down curses upon themselves, saying, punish us should we fail to keep your word. It's in view of this special relationship that Amos begins his series of rhetorical questions. Amos asks in verse 3, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? And the obvious answer is no. The Lord and Israel consciously met and agreed to walk together at Sinai in that covenant. They both recognize their part, their relationship. And these rhetorical questions in verses 3 to 6 not only imply a relationship between God and Israel, but they also advance Amos' prophecy concerning the coming punishment of Israel. Read verses 4 to 6. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is, is a trumpet blown in a city 
and the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Well, I'm sure you can guess the answer to all of these questions, all of these rhetorical questions. The answer is no. And what they imply, or, or at least what they imply is, is frightening, and, and the people of Israel should be frightened by what they hear. The lion roars precisely because he has a prey. And we know who the lion is. Because Amos told us at the very beginning of this book, Amos chapter 1 verse 2, that the Lord roars. The Lord is the lion. The Lord has His prey. And His prey is His own people, Israel. This adversarial relationship between the Lord and Israel is further expounded upon as, as the questions unfold. Verse 5, Israel is in the clutches of the Lord's trap by her own doing. Verse 6, our God and warrior has blown His trumpet and Israel shudders. Disaster is coming because God has judged the punishment to be righteous and just. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our relationship with God is not unlike God's relationship with the Old Testament people. They were enslaved in Egypt and we were enslaved in sin. He set His love upon them and set them free. He set His love upon us and set us free from the chains of sin and death. And because He has done this, that does not mean that we are free to live as we choose. Just like Israel wasn't free to go and violate God's law. Jesus has set us free from the power of sin and death so that we might live and serve Him. Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commands. Was Jesus promoting legalism? No. He was reminding His disciples that the motivation for their obedience ought to spring from their love for Him. Their relationship with Christ was the fountainhead of their obedience. As, as one Christian pastor has said, God saves us to rule us. And He rules us to save us. This morning, as a church, we will show our love for the Lord Jesus in keeping His command to celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we obey, we remember what He has done for us, pictured in this meal. Next week, should our Savior tarry, we will obey our Savior's command to baptize disciples. As we obey... We will, Lord willing, remember what He has done for us as pictured in that ordinance. Obedience to God ought to mark the people of God, corporately and individually. It didn't mark Israel when Amos was preaching to them. But it should mark us. We must hear and obey. Thomas Goodwin reminds us that Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. Judas is indeed... An ominous reminder of the truth of James 1.22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Israel had deceived themselves into thinking that everything was just fine between them and God. They kept on offering sacrifices. And yet their lives were filled with atrocious sin. Everything was not fine with God. God had dealt graciously with Israel and He has dealt graciously with us. Rather than that being licensed to trample on His grace, 
it ought to encourage us to live in light of His grace. And children, I, I especially want you to understand that God's grace and love are the motivation, are the grounds of our obedience to Him. Only when we recognize that we love because He first loved us will we obey with truly grateful hearts. Only when we recognize that there's nothing, nothing we can do to earn God's saving favor, but that He has graciously lavished it upon His people will we be propelled to earnestly obey Him. Think, think, children, about your relationship with your parents and about their love for you. They love you when you do what is right. And they love you when you do something wrong. Now, I'm sure that when you obey and do something right, your experience of your relationship with your parents is different than when you disobey and do something wrong. But even this does not change your parents' love for you. Your parents do not love you on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of who you are. You are their child. And that's how God loves His spiritual children. He does not love us on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what He has done for us in giving us His Son and making us His children. Let me encourage you to talk with your parents this afternoon or this evening about the relationship between love, God's love, and our obedience to His commands. Ask your parents questions like these. Why does God love us? Ask them, why does He call us to obey? And why should we hear and obey Him? That would be a good conversation to have this afternoon or this evening. Amos is no doubt aware that by this point in his prophecy, the people of Israel are ready to dismiss him. Remember, he's just told Israel that disaster is coming. Perhaps they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, we've heard enough of this lowly shepherd from the south. By whose authority, Amos, are you really declaring these things? You can sense this kind of attitude. And Amos, he seemingly preempts that kind of objection with verses 7 and 8. Read those verses, verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? That which I've been declaring to you, Amos effectively says, is not my own vision. Rather, it's the Lord's revelation. This is what the Lord God has spoken. No one in their right mind, goes into hostile enemy territory like Amos was doing, coming from the south, headed to the north. You don't go into hostile enemy territory and say, look, you're going to get it, okay? God is coming. You're in for it. That's like walking into the cave of a sleeping bear, taking a stick and poking him. You, just, you don't do that kind of thing. But that is what God has called Amos to do. God has called Amos to go to a hostile people and preach judgment. And we feel a sense of duty and compulsion in Amos' words. Who can but prophesy? It's as if he can do no other but speak for the Lord. And he can do no other. And so he speaks. Amos must speak what will he speak about? We're reminded of the subject of his prophecy yet again in verses 9 through 11. So let's turn now to our second point. God's promise of punishment. 
God's promise of punishment. As we consider this, read Amos chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Here, in these verses, we meet with God's proclamation of plunder and punishment for the people of Israel. And in these verses, we're reading what Amos is to say to the people of Israel on God's behalf. And it's not pretty. Before we look at that proclamation, let's consider why this plundering punishment is promised. It's as clear as day in verse 10. They do not know how to do right. Nothing that they do accords with God's righteousness. Their ways are bent and broken. Their paths are crooked rather than straight. One scholar suggested that they had practiced injustice against their fellow Israelites for so long that it had become part of their normal behavior. This crookedness had become the straight way for them. And when I, I read those words, they do not know how to do right, I was reminded of what Moses said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. There we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you remember what took place just a few verses after Moses said that in the book of Genesis? It was the flood. It was an act of judgment upon the earth in response to man's evil. The wickedness of mankind precipitated God's act of judgment in the flood. And it is because of the wickedness of Israel that God is promising a plundering punishment. Not only is this a, a harrowing punishment promise, but it's also an embarrassing and shameful punishment promise. We can see that there in verse 9, that Israel's neighbors, Ashdod and Egypt, are called to witness this punishment. Ashdod is, of course, a reference to the Philistines, which is why I probably slipped mentally when I was praying for the Philippines. Pray for the Philistines. Shouldn't do that. Um, there it is. Uh, so Ashdod's a reference to the Philistines, and Egypt is obviously a reference to the Egyptians. Uh, these are two long-standing enemies of Israel. These were enemies that Israel loved to shame by reminding them of their victories over them. We've defeated you several times. Don't forget the, the Exodus and don't forget David's many victories. Um, they, they love to shame these neighbors and enemies. But Ashdod and Egypt are called to witness the great tumults and the oppression occurring within Israel, they are called to, to peer into the sins and wickedness occurring right in the heart of the northern kingdom of Israel's capital city, Samaria. In some ways, the, the ancient enemies of God, the Philistines, the Egyptians, Ashdod and Egypt, they function as confirming witnesses against God's people. Like associate justices concurring with the chief justice's opinion, they agree and confirm the wickedness that God sees when they see it with their own eyes. And here's the thing, the, the Philistines and the Egyptians were well known for their brutality and violence. They, they were good at recognizing what violence and brutality looked like. 
So it speaks volumes to the nature of Israel's oppression and violence. That they're brought in as witnesses. Indeed, the, the wickedness that they see is described there at the end of verse 10 with the words, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. And the idea here is that they have accumulated wealth through violence. Thus, it, this, this kind of combination of words, storing up violence. And that, and that they have also stolen from others through a corrupt legal process in order to fill their palaces and homes with treasures and goods. Thus, robbery in their strongholds. Amos seems to be making clear that he sees and condemns the wealth that they have amassed through sinful pursuits. They have wickedly crushed, trampled, oppressed, and held others down so that they could live in luxury. This is the word of God against his people. The context in which we live our lives today is not too dissimilar from what the ancient people of God were experiencing. Israel was in a very prosperous season in their nation's history. Brothers and sisters, we live in prosperous America. And by comparison to uh, the rest of the world and the income that the rest of the world makes, uh, most of us are rich. By comparison to the rest of the people of the world, almost each one of us here this morning is rich. Now, you, you may not think that kind of intuitively, but by comparison to what most other people make in a day, uh, most of us are rich. And living in the context of a prosperous nation is a spiritual test and challenge for God's people. Our surrounding culture offers us siren calls to accumulate money and possessions so that we can be happy. Because we, we think that's going to satisfy us. And while money and possessions are not evil in and of themselves, we know from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a striking statement, but what I find even more interesting is what Paul actually goes on to say next in that verse. He says, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It strikes me that that's what happened in Israel's day when Amos was preaching to them. They were prosperous. They were filling their houses with luxury. And all of these things are, are gifts from God. And they become consumed with the gift rather than the giver of the gift. That's what happened to the people of Israel in Amos' day. The, the author of Hebrews uh, says something similar to what Paul said. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he said, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We should be careful to think that we don't have a problem with money. For we probably all make an idol of money to one degree or another. We, we must be on guard against viewing our lives of consisting in an, an abundance of possessions, as Jesus warned in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And the answer to guarding ourselves against the love of money is not poverty. Rather, it's wise stewardship and sacrificial generosity in view of God's grace and mercy toward us. We must remember that all that we have, we have as a trust from God. 
We should invite others into our lives and talk with them about our financial dealings. What do we really have to hide? Why wouldn't we be open to counsel in this area, especially when it is so spiritually dangerous? We should also be generous with the resources that we have. God has been generous with us, and every time we give sacrificially, we are in effect declaring that we are not slaves to money and possessions. Almost everything in the lives of the people that Amos was writing to revolved around money and accumulating more of it, even at the expense and the welfare of others. If we think about our resources only in connection to ourselves, rather than in connection with God or others, something might be terribly wrong with how we're thinking about money. One of the striking features of this section is, is that it's not as though the Lord goes for the kind of the soft underbelly when He promises to punish Israel. He actually goes for the hard outer shell. The Lord will not bring the punishment in through the back door. He's going to burst through the front door in a fury. Those defenses that the people trust so much in, the defenses that the people of Israel revere and take refuge in, God says in verse 11, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. That which you are hoping will protect you is actually hopeless against the Almighty God. And just think about what's being described here. An adversary will surround the land. This is no small collection of men. It's not a minuscule militia. In order for an adversary to surround the land, it would have to be a mighty army. And what this army will do is reminiscent of what the people of Israel did in Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. All their strongholds and defenses will be brought to ruin. It's a reversal of Israel's original conquest of the land. And this seems to be looking forward to what Assyria's conquest of the northern kingdom uh, did in 722 BC. In verse 11, the Lord promises that an adversary will come. But then, the camera, which is kind of recording this dramatic prophecy, pans across the landscape, shifting from the adversary to focusing in on Israel. What's going to happen with Israel? An adversary will come, but what will be Israel's fate? And that's what we discover in Amos chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. And here we're considering our final point. Rescue through retribution. Rescue through retribution. Read Amos chapter 3, verses 12 to 15 with me. Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. In response to the comprehensive wickedness of the people of Israel, God promises a comprehensive punishment. And to make this point, Amos draws on his experience as a shepherd and provides an analogy. In verse 12, Amos describes a scene in which a shepherd's flock is totally decimated by a lion. All that is left of the flock is a few scraps, a, a couple of legs here or a scrap of an ear there. 
And here I think that we can actually see something of Amos' sympathy for the people of Israel. As a shepherd, this scene is horrific and devastating and incredibly discouraging. There's, there's virtually nothing left of the flock that he was called to protect. It's based on this analogy that Amos turns and says, So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch or a part of a bed. Amos is effectively saying, Look, there's basically going to be nothing left of you. And the sins and the possessions that you've so wickedly enjoyed... The luxurious, expensive couches that you filled your palaces with and oppressed the innocent in order to get, you're only going to be able to take a shredded corner of that. That bed on which you performed wicked acts of sexual immorality, you can keep part of it to remind you of your sin and wickedness. It's not a terribly encouraging word from the Lord. And Amos is charged by God in verse 13 to keep going, to keep testifying against the house of Jacob by telling them in verse 14 that God will eliminate the altars of Bethel and He will cut off the horns of the altar. Here the Lord is striking at the false religion and idolatry that the northern kingdom set up. See, when the kingdoms were divided, the king in the north set up an alternate and unauthorized place of worship. He didn't want his people traveling from the north to the south to worship at the appropriate temple that God had set up. Uh, this was prohibited by God. The king could not, and we cannot, worship God in any way we want. Rather, we are called to worship God through the means that He provides and in the manner that He prescribes. And in verse 15, Amos returns to the theme that he mentioned earlier in verse 12. The destruction of their luxurious lifestyles and homes. The advance that this particular verse makes in Amos' argument is to continue to underscore that which began in verse 14. You'll notice in verse 14 that the Lord said, I will punish, I will punish. Here in verse 15 it's, I will strike, I will strike. While in the days ahead the Lord will use the Assyrian armies to do these things, He wants the people of Israel to know that He has divinely ordained this punishment. He stands behind it and pushes it forward. Now, stepping back to consider the totality of what Amos has said in this chapter, we're not left with much hope, are we? The closest thing that we get to a glimmer of hope in this chapter is in verse 12. Read verse 12 again. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch or a part of a bed. On first glance, this, this doesn't inspire much hope, does it? What is a, a shepherd supposed to do with two legs of a lamb? Is he supposed to bring it back to his master and say, look what I rescued from the mouth of the lion. So about my pay this week, do you mind if I get that in cash? He's not bringing back the flock that he's been entrusted to care for and protect. What about when he only comes back with a piece of an ear? The reality is that this verse actually does double duty in Amos' prophecy. And in order for us to recognize this, we have to remember who our God is. First, we have to remember that God is just. This punishment is just. This description of virtually nothing left of Israel is just, for virtually all of Israel was corrupt and filled with sin. It's not only right, it's only right that a few nearly unintelligible scraps of Israel 
remain. Our God is just and this punishment is just. That's the first thing that we need to remember. And here's the second. Our God is merciful. A few scraps do remain. In the midst of this punishment, God will preserve a remnant. Through retribution, He will rescue a remnant. He will preserve a faithful few, even while He sends His people out of the promised land and into exile. And God has been known to do this kind of thing before. I mentioned the flood earlier. Uh, Do you know what God said to Noah as He contemplated the destruction of the earth? In Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, God said, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. What did God do? Well, He did what He said, and He saved a small remnant in Noah's family. This is what God does. He punishes and saves. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord promised to destroy the city. He did what He said He would do, and He rescued Lot. What happened with Jericho? He saved and delivered Rahab. We could go on and on through the Scriptures, seeing examples of this. Now let's be honest about what we're seeing here in Amos. This is not a particularly positive or happy notion of a remnant. The, the remnant described here, uh, as described here, are two legs of a lamb and a piece of an ear. Things don't look so bright. But that's the prophetic tone of the book of Amos. In Amos, the weight is largely upon retribution instead of rescue. In other books of the Bible, the concept of remnant, a person or a group of people saved from judgment, takes on a more happy and positive posture. But I think that we should take whatever glimmer of hope that we can get here. And it is here. Even if it is the rescue of two legs of a lamb or a piece of an ear. None deserve to be rescued. But in God's grace, some are. And that should give us hope. Frankly, the people of Israel, as described in the book of Amos, weren't particularly worthy of salvation. They were people who were prosperous and proud and perverse. Remember that in the face of God's kindness, His loving relationship with them, they practiced idolatry. They were filled with hypocrisy and greed, took bribes, perverted justice, oppressed the weak, and committed sexual morality. And yet, God was going to rescue some of them. Can you believe that? God's grace and mercy should astound you. That He would save anyone. This should be astounding to you because such were some of you. Now, perhaps you object, but, you know, but all that's going to be left is two legs of a lamb or a piece of an ear. What kind of a rescue is that? There's nothing left. Friends, brothers and sisters, that is no problem for our God. Let's remember the power of our God. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's Hebrews 11.3, for those of you who are memorizing verses at home. Uh, God made the universe out of nothing. He can surely reconstitute and renew His people from just a small remnant. Do you remember what Jesus said about the power of our God in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9? Didn't Jesus say that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from stones? When God decides to rescue a people for Himself, He will 
rescue a people for himself. And he, he is so heaven-bent on rescuing a people like the people described in the book of Amos. This should encourage us because we're just like them. Too often we have practiced idolatry and served created things rather than the creator. Too often we have committed sexual morality with our hands and our hearts and our heads. Too often we have been religious hypocrites pretending that we're perfectly righteous and holy when really we're filled with sin and we feel like we can't find our way out of its darkness. Those who read the book of Amos in faith see that the shepherd rescues something, anything, shows us how kind and merciful he is. He is the good shepherd. And this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. God is the lion. And we deserve his judgment for our sins. But in love he sent the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from certain judgment. And this is good news to all who believe. And we should all believe this good news. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just like the people of Israel did. But the good news is that God has sent us His Son to rescue us. He lived the life that none of us have lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. Where we have been sinful, He has been sinless. And though He was perfectly sinless, He went to the cross and He took upon Himself the judgment. He faced the jaws of the lion for us. And he was punished for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. Jesus died under the judgment of God so that sinners like you and me might be rescued from the wrath of God. And three days after his death, God raised him from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in his sight. That Justice and judgment had been satisfied. And now Jesus calls out to us and says, Come and be rescued. Come to me in faith. Believe that I have done this for you. That I have given my life for you. That I have died for you. And I have been raised for you. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, come to him in faith. Believe this good news that he rescues sinners like you and me. There's nothing more glorious. There's no more good news than that news. What Jesus has done for us. Believe on Him today and be saved. Friends, we should conclude. We began uh, this morning by asking the question, does God really care about how His people live? And Amos 3 teaches us explicitly and implicitly that God most certainly does. And that He will indeed discipline His people in love. His discipline is for the purposes of refinement, to encourage repentance and holiness when we've sinned, and to assure us of His love for us, and frankly, to clarify who God's people really are. Remember, only a remnant two legs of a lamb or a piece of an ear were going to be rescued. 
Simply because we are outwardly part of the people of God does not mean that we are inwardly part of the people of God. And God looks upon the heart. He saw all of Israel's religion and He saw that it was empty. Simply because we've been baptized, have joined a church, or participate in the Lord's Supper does not mean that we are necessarily united to Christ. Typically, those are good indications of salvation. But they are not in and of themselves guarantees of salvation. They're not a guarantee of salvation. Our only guarantee of salvation is in Jesus Christ Himself. He is the Good Shepherd who rescues His sheep. And that is why we place our whole hope in Him and in Him alone. Praise God for Him. Let's pray together.